All right, so we have been going through the book of Romans. We dealt with the beginning, the first 12 chapters. The first 11 chapters are focused on the gospel. They're focused on uh, the reality that we are righteous by faith and not by works. We are righteous by the grace of God, causing Christ to be sent and to pay for our sins, to keep the law, to provide us with an external righteousness that's not our own, and to give to us through the alone instrument of faith that connection to that righteousness so that we're righteous before God, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then we consider the reality that we are sanctified, that we are more and more made righteous internally, not so that we can have a right standing with God, but because we already have a right standing and for the purpose of causing us to display and to see the righteousness of God more and more in the world. And then there was a consideration of the righteousness of God and his treatment of Israel and in predestination. And so we got into chapter 12 and we are dealing with that turn point where there is a consideration of since we have such a great salvation, we ought now to live our lives as an acceptable sacrifice to God. And so we should do the things that he has commanded and not invent good works for ourselves. And so we considered how the Ten Commandments get laid out in chapter 12 and 13 as a special emphasis on the Fifth Commandment. And it goes into the civil magistrate and what the state ought to do in terms of Romans 13 verses 1 to 7. And then we got to the text that the preaching is from today. So uh, please stand briefly for the reading of the text that we'll be uh, preaching from. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Please be seated. Now, this text reminds us, and we've been going through it slowly, we've been considering drawing together systematically those, those commandments. This reminds us that we have no obligation except the obligations that God imposes. The law of God establishes for us our duties. And when you love your neighbor, you're fulfilling the law. And so then we have a list of laws, and those laws teach us what it is to love. And so there's a relationship between love and the law. The law of God teaches us what love is, and love is the requirements of the law. And so we consider then the laying out of the commandments, and there's this end verse, verse 10, that says love does no harm to a neighbor. And that teaches us that love is seeking the good of the neighbor. Love is not seeking the harm of the neighbor. And so... The goal, the good of the neighbor, we've been taught, is the glory of God, the knowledge of God, that that what's good for you is to possess God, right? Trade everything for God, don't trade God for anything, right? That's the trade, that's how you win, right? That's the trade. 
And so to get God is to get the knowledge of God. We can't put God in a box. We can't hold on to him. We can't put him in a little bag and put him on our side. Right? The way we possess God is by knowing God. And so we know God as he's revealed himself in his word. And the knowledge of God is increased as we store up the word in our hearts and meditate upon it. As we apply it, we think about it in new ways. And so the law of God should be meditated on day and night. And so the consideration of the law of God teaches us how, not only we know what the goal is, but it teaches us how to seek the goal. It teaches us how to seek the good of our neighbor. You might think it's my good to know God, and then you might justify any action that you can imagine claiming that it would somehow help me to know God. But we have both the goal defined for us and the means defined for us. And so love teaches us, you know, you might be you might be tempted to think, is this commandment of God actually for this person's good? And the answer is yes. You might wonder, if I obey the commandment of God here, I'm worried that this is going to hurt this person. Well, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The law of God does not cause the harm of the neighbor in a way where you're responsible for it. If it causes their harm, you know why? It's because they reject it. They reject God. They reject the teaching of God. Everything is for your harm if you reject God. But those who are called according to God's purpose, everything works together for their good. And so we apply the law. That's our way of seeking the good of our neighbor and seeking to not do them harm. And so the law that we consider today is the Eighth Commandment. And the Eighth Commandment is, you shall not steal. You might come up with an elaborate way where you think that there's a scenario where stealing is for someone's good. You are wrong. And so one of those elaborate ways that we find our society does not like private property. If you have too much private property, then that in itself seems to be evil. And no matter how much you pay in taxes, you're not paying your fair share. Your fair share seems to be enough to make sure you aren't rich anymore. That's the definition of fair share for people who are doing well. You're doing very well. That's very bad. Let's make you not do well. Taxes seem like a legitimate means to do that. So the taking, the extracting of money through the sword of the state is the popular way of stealing now. You also find rioting and going into stores and stealing from them with flash mobs to be a socially acceptable means of stealing now. If there's a large corporation and that corporation has a profitable income statement, going into their store and taking from them is a way of redistributing wealth. It is not. It is a way of stealing. And so, whatever our culture wants to name theft, theft is theft, and it is opposed by God. And so we consider the Eighth Commandment and its general tenets. And what I want to point out to you first of all with the Eighth Commandment, remember, what's the goal? The goal is the glory of God. And so the Eighth Commandment fits into the glory of God because God, when he created man, gave to him authority over the creatures. He made him in the image of God, made him rational, and a part of that rationality is planning for the use of resources. And the planning for the use of resources is about using knowledge to achieve a goal with prudent means. 
And so that manifestation of the image of God, that manifestation of human work, is a way in which we glorify God in the earth. And is in fact a precursor to all other ways that we glorify God in a more extensive way. If there's not enough food for people to eat, then there will not be people to glorify God. Famine has been a great cause of death. And if you look at, for example, what happened in the Soviet Union in terms of the Ukraine in the early 20th century, estimates are as high as 20 million people starved by forcible starvation because of the communist regime trying to prevent the private property owners of farms from being able to keep the fruits of their labor. And so the extraction of the land from those people and then the taking of the fruit of the labor and leaving them with too little to live on uh, is a way that theft can be used to even kill. So private property is the ordinary way in which prosperity is increased and in which resources are given for things like the increase of children, the increase of education, the spreading of godly culture, being able to support ministry, being able to uh, do good work and be generous. So the goal of the glory of God through dominion work, dominion is about the use of the earth and all of the things in the earth, all of the cosmos being put to the disposal of man for man to be able to create gain. And the only way that you can measure whether or not you've gained in terms of the material you are producing is whether or not what you are doing generates a profit. So I want to pause on that for just a second. The only order for property that allows for measurement to occur to determine if something is a useful application of time, energy, effort, and resources is the private property order. One of the things that happens in regimes that try to centralize and socialize property is they make it so that prices are no longer determined by what people want and what people have, but instead are fixed by law. And when you fix prices by law, you inevitably create gluts or shortages. Because the thing that controls what people make with their time is their valuation, their, their judgment of what thing is going to be most useful. And the way that our neighbors signal to, to us how we can serve them in the private property order is by being willing to pay more for a thing when there's a shortage and being willing to pay less for a thing when there's a glut. Prices are the signals for producers of what to do. Any job you've ever taken, you've considered what you're getting paid before you took it. You're a producer of your time and labor, and you sell it for a price. And when somebody offers you $100 an hour to do something that you enjoy equally as well as something you're offered to do for $20 an hour, it would be foolish to take the $20 an hour. And so that choice of people making voluntary exchanges, offering and accepting offers, 
is the mechanism by which signals are given for people to know how they can best serve their neighbor. So that signal of prices depends upon the private property order. And the Eighth Commandment teaches us plainly and clearly that God does not support the principle of ownership in common. If ownership were in common, if all of us owned everything equally, that would mean stealing is impossible because each of us could do as we saw fit with any property. Stealing presupposes private property. The commandment to not steal establishes the private property order. So people will say to you, the Bible doesn't teach communism and it doesn't teach capitalism. It teaches something else. And that's a lie. The Bible teaches capitalism. The Bible teaches private property. Capitalism is nothing other than the private property order that people ought to be able to do as they see fit with their own property under the stewardship that they have been given, and they are responsible to God. You can commit crimes with your property. You can use, you can pay an assassin, and you should be punished for that as attempted murder or murder if that's successful. That's an illegal, that's a criminal use of property. But doing what you see fit with your property apart from crimes is what God has given as a right, and that is implicit in the commandment to not steal. So we'll consider that in more detail, but I wanted to lay those out at the beginning. The next thing is, as you respect people's private property and dominion, and you respect their, um, their ownership, their stewardship under God, you recognize that their property, their talents, the gifts of the Spirit given to them are for them to choose what to do with in their station. It is not the right of the state to go and tell people what to produce or what to do with their time. It is not the right of the church to go around and to tell people what to do with their time. The household and the individual are the institutions for the control of property. The household and the individual are the institutions for the control of property. God has created Adam and he gave to him dominion. The union between a husband and a wife forms a household with the shared possession of property and children are to be raised with that property and are heirs to that property. And so the passage of property to children and the passage of wisdom to children is a great part of the nobility of the process of building an estate and managing it well. And so this idea that across generations, idea and property, ideas and technology, skills and abilities are passed on and developed and a concern for calling to be able to do well in the place where one is and to be able to enjoy the fruits of labor, these things are pulled together into that. So the Eighth Commandment, I'm going to go to the bottom of page one now. The Eighth Commandment has a relationship to the other commandments that relate to love of neighbor. So we've talked about how the last six of the commandments all tell us how to love our neighbor. The first four teach us how to love God. So the Fifth Commandment is about honor to the glory of God. The Sixth Commandment is about power to the glory of God. The Seventh Commandment is about pleasure to the glory of God. And the Eighth Commandment is about money to the glory of God. Now, we can take these things and make them all into gods. We can have pride rather than a proper sense of honor. We can have a, a lust for power and a willingness to murder as opposed to the idea that we should use power for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God. We can seek pleasure and be hedonists. We can be adulterers. We can commit all sorts of sexual sins as opposed to properly ordering the desire for pleasure and using the moderate pursuit of pleasures in their place as lawful. 
And it's also possible to worship money. And money worshipped is mammon. Now, sometimes people act as though industrious working for the sake of the pursuit of profit and the accumulation of those profits to redeploy them is somehow greed. Greed is not that. Greed is the desire to take something that's not yours, the desire to gain through unlawful means, also known as coveting. Greed is not the desire to improve your station. Greed is not the willingness to work in order to improve your outward estate. That's industry. That is godly dominion. That is stewardship. The only type of excess profits are other people's profits. Nobody ever thinks their profit is excess. Nobody ever looks at what they did when lawfully acting and having a profit and goes, this was sinful of me to profit so well in this good activity. The idea of excess profits is essentially envy exalted. We should be grateful for the Lord giving profits to others, happy to see their success. So, money is to be used for dominion and discipleship and grateful enjoyment. Now, when we consider the possibility of a wrong ordering of our desires for money, whenever you think that truth should be controlled by money, like the paying of bribes or being willing to take money to argue an evil cause, that is the worship of money. If you think that the dollar controls everything, that is the worship of money. Marxism is also known as economic determinism. If you've ever read any books that essentially teach uh, that the way things are is controlled by who has the means of production, the way things are is controlled by geography, you ever read any history books that say, this nation is great because this nation has more navigable rivers than any other nation, or this nation is great because we have so much open land. Well, I don't know. It seems like there are other countries in the world that have had navigable rivers and open land and have squandered them. It seems like there are nations in the world that have been great one day and bad the next. It seems like their geography did not determine whether or not they were or remained great. When you say that the economics of things are what determine the outcomes... You are worshiping money. God is almighty. The dollar is not. If you think that what makes money is what works and what works is what's good, you are worshiping the dollar. These are all things, these are all lies to be aware of, to make sure that as you read, as you consider things, that you be careful to not fall into those pits. Now, One of the things I also want to point out is that there's a tendency, based upon your personality type, to be drawn to different of these temptations. If you are kingly, if you're particularly focused on getting stuff done, if if you're a good administrator, you're effective at moving and shaking, there tends to be a concern for power, ability to make things happen, and honor, reputation. I must get credit for the awesome things I do. And so, those two temptations tend towards, uh, the kingly tend towards those. 
power and honor. And when we worship those things, right, pride and sort of this domineering power seeking are the, ten, are the tendencies is what comes out. If you are priestly, if you're concerned about the relational and about beauty principally, right, if those are the kinds of things that you want the good feelings and the good times and peace to continue, the temptation is generally towards pleasure. And so the prophetic, one of the nice things about money is that you can calculate. You can calculate all sorts of made-up scenarios. And you can keep doing it forever because there's always more scenarios. And so there's a certain intellectual enjoyment of just calculating things about money sometimes. And so it's relatively easy if you're prophetic to fall into that because you also go, the nice thing about money is that it makes it so I don't have to deal with people. Or the nice thing about money is I don't have to care about the abuses of power in the world. The nice thing about money is I don't have to care about reputation as much. I can always buy that back. Right? These are the kinds of things you can tell yourself if you think that money is all-powerful. And so if you like ideas, if you like doctrine, if you're concerned about the systematic money of all of these worldly things is likely to be the thing that you're drawn to as the greater temptation in terms of a false god. So money, pleasure, power, and honor, we've been talking about all of these things, and today we're on money. So the larger catechism talks about the duties required in the Eighth Commandment. So the commandments do not steal. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. It's a great phrase. Truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. Sounds like something you could just pull out of Adam Smith. Rendering to everyone his due. Restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof. Giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. A provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition. A lawful calling and diligence in it. Frugality. Avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship, or other like engagements, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. Well, there's a few things we're talking about there, so let's start at it. The first point, we're going to go down to point eight on page two. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are, are truthful Truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. So truth in contracts and commerce between man and man. So contracts, what are contracts? Contracts are voluntary agreements that you enter into. You, there, are, there are parties, there are terms. Uh, the terms involve an exchange of things between the parties where each is providing value. And there's an acceptance of an offer that's been understood. So there's a meeting of the minds. Okay? So... This establishment of an agreement 
to provide one thing in exchange for something else is a contract. Now, the Ninth Commandment has a general obligation as regards promises. But nobody has a property right on promises that are unilaterally given. There is a property right when there's an exchange. And so we have a duty to generally keep our promises, but we have a special duty to keep contracts. Now, you know somebody has a Protestant view of property when they say contracts are sacred. Because they are. Contracts are sacred. And commerce is a good work. Commerce is a good work. And so this idea of contracts that are between man and man, and the idea of commerce between man and man, commerce involves exchange. It's the, the com is with, and merce comes down to the idea of, of the idea of, uh, of merchants, merchandise, right? The same root, this this sort of uh, idea of the things that are involved in trade, goods for trade, exchange of things. So the 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 things that involve goods and trade. So those things, contracts and commerce between man and man, we are required to be have truth, faithfulness, and justice in them. So truth in them would involve Truth in contracts and commerce between man and man involves telling the truth in negotiations, representing what's true, giving truthful accounts of what's promised, matching up with what's delivered, speaking truth in disputes between parties. Faithfulness in contracts and commerce involves an effort to fulfill your promises and obligations, to be a good servant if you're being paid, to be a good peer if you're both working together in an organization and trying to help each other to advance the goal, being a good boss and not just being lazy in terms of that. We saw that in the fifth commandment, but there's now this idea that you, you hire somebody in the expectation that you're not going to be constantly trying to trip them up or fail to do your duties towards them. Being a good trustee or director or board member or steward if you're given authority over some institution or property. Being good at managing state funds or church funds if you in, are in public office. That's faithfulness in contracts and commerce. So the receipt of an office. You might even receive an office without getting paid for it and have a duty of faithfulness. You might, in some cases, accept an office on a volunteer basis and you accept that with a title and certain powers. And that title and powers establish an obligation of faithfulness because you're given those things and with the expectation of using them faithfully. Justice in contracts and commerce between man and man is giving to each his due, what's owed. Giving to each what is owed in contracts and in, in commerce. So there are some key verses there on page 3 uh, that have to do with these general obligations. And there's going to be a lot of verses throughout, and so for the sake of time, I'm going to generally not walk through them unless there's an illustrative point that I think needs to be made or there's a significant dispute where a lot of people disagree with those things. So uh, rendering to each is due. Okay, so that one right there, uh, rendering what's due is clearly laid out in Romans 13, 7. Um, if you don't pay what's owed, if you don't render what's due, you're stealing. And so if you are in a position of authority and making judgment on a case, and you don't rule justly, you're stealing justice. 
Point 10, restitution of goods unlawfully detained for the rightful owners thereof. This is a central piece of protecting the private property order um, and making it so that the concern in justice is to see the harm of the party harmed restored or minimized. So in our society, what generally happens if somebody steals is somebody steals, they waste the property, the person is arrested, we tax people to take more money, we put that person into a place where they are given food and water and shelter without having a work obligation to create productively, and we say, ah, justice. Right, so that's the, the prison system. The prison system is not biblical. You will find nowhere in the Bible where God says the appropriate penalty for this is to have other people pay for this guy to sleep and eat and have him be stuck in a box. You will search in vain the annals of biblical history, the texts of biblical law, and you will not find Restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof is what's established. In Luke 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So this is Zacchaeus' repentance. Now, biblical restitution, right? Somebody wrongfully takes... They restore the property plus some multiple. The lowest restitution ever in the Bible is restore the property plus 20%. That's the lowest. Restore the property plus 20%. That's in Leviticus 6. The highest is either seven times or five times, depending on how you read Proverbs 6.31. 6.31 says you're going to restore seven times. There's not something in the Torah uh, which establishes the maximum of seven times. So that might be a symbolic statement that um, you restore seven is used to represent completeness, right? So maybe a reference to completeness. Um, the highest example that you can find that's in the Torah uh, is a five-time multiple in Exodus 22. And that's very specifically with when somebody steals an ox, and the ox, here's the value you get of the ox. The ox is an ox, and frankly, you can eat it. Beyond being edible, oxen do work to produce more ox. Beyond producing more oxen, they also tread out the grain. Now, sheep are fourfold. They don't tread out grain. Sheep you can eat. Sheep you can, you know, get wool from, and you can have more sheep and trade those. They don't trade out grain. Attach a plow to a sheep, and you won't get very far. Maybe if you get enough of them, you could like have like a group mushing of the sheep. But the group mushing of the sheep would probably not be a very efficient way to tread out the grain. So oxen, extra multiple. So the value of the extra production of an ox as an extra multiple. So you find a five times multiple in cases where somebody has stolen something, uh, perhaps lost it or sold it already, uh, and then you need this multiple back. So this restoring of property. Now you say, 
It seems that sometimes people who steal do not responsibly manage the money. They don't stick it away in a 401k and don't have it easily available to be able to take it back out and repay. And the rate of return they get is typically not multiplying their money times five. So how might one obtain this money? Well, if they have productive work, it's possible that they could work to pay that off. But if they don't have property and they don't have a means of income to be able to continue to repay through honest labor, then the biblical standard is that the person's time should be sold against their will for the repayment of those things. And our courts essentially use the same thing in terms of requiring repayment and the extracting of money that comes out of people's accounts through automatic withdrawals and the seizing of, of property. But we do not go to the point of requiring people to do work in order to pay back what they have stolen. And the interesting thing is we might all think, well, yeah, that's slavery, and slavery was abolished in the United States of America. Well, interestingly, the Constitution, uh, when it, and there was an amendment to abolish slavery, Amendment 13, Section 1 says this, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, comma, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Okay, so no slavery or involuntary servitude except as a punishment to repay what's owed. That's in the Constitution. Why? Because even in the 1860s, even in the midst of the fervor to abolish slavery, because chattel slavery was wrong, there was a recognition of the need for forced labor for the repayment of property crimes. Now, our own Supreme Court, there was a case not, not too many years ago, I don't remember the name of it, I didn't have time to look it up, but the, the case was this. There were inmates in some states that were being required to do work while they were in prisons, and there was a lawsuit that the 13th Amendment stopped slavery and indentured servitude and the Supreme Court found that these prisons had to pay these prisoners for their work. They seem to have missed the interrupter clause. And so, in case any of you see them, feel free to give them a copy of this with the underlined and bolded clause. Except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. So if any of these people were in prison and they weren't duly convicted, we should probably let them go. If they were duly convicted, having them work while they are having shelter provided for them seems like a reasonable thing to do. So the idea of restitution is biblical, it's important, and it's an obligation that is necessary when property crimes have been committed. And it is much wiser than the inventions of men, like putting people in bad company in boxes and having them not do work and have people provide for them through tax dollars. Point 11 giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. All right, so this is not saying be taxed heavily and have that go to others to meet their necessities. This says giving and lending freely. Freely means not being coerced. So, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. So, let's consider this. As you have means and as your neighbor has need, 
You should look for opportunity to use your goods to seek the good of your neighbor in giving and lending. Okay? There's an order of responsibility here. Yourself and your household are kind of that first group. If you're not able to provide for your own household, you're stealing from your household if you give to other people. If you're not able to provide for your household, you're stealing from your household when you give to others. After you provide for yourself and your household, it's your duty to give to support those who are in your church. So you have a brother, right? You have two shirts. Your brother has no shirts. You give one to your brother. You have one shirt. You keep your shirt. Okay, that's the order of responsibility. The state. You go, are there people in my covenanted sphere in terms of my city, my state, my federated union? Then you think about the world. These are people you don't have a covenantal obligation to unless they are members of the church worldwide. And then your care for Christians in other nations supersedes unbelievers in your own nation. Okay, so the order of responsibility, yourself and your household, the church, the state, and then the broader world. Now, when you're thinking about being able to give and lend, and you're thinking about your own ability and the necessity of others, there's a general obligation to not provide for people to do evil or to be idle. If you don't work, you don't eat, is what the Apostle Paul says. And so, if somebody doesn't have enough material for them to work, the way we help them is by getting them what they need in order to work profitably. So you have to get somebody able to be able to, to keep the machine running, to, to do what's necessary. Okay? You, you make sure you have that for yourself. Can I continue to work? So if you're a farmer and you go, well, we have just enough grain to be able to replant. Okay, well, keep that grain to replant. And then ask your brothers for help to be able to sustain yourself. Don't destroy your means of production. Okay, let them know of the need for help. Um, the, the duty to tithe. Maintaining the operation is a higher duty than the duty to tithe. That's why the Lord only requires tithing on profit. There's not a tithe on revenue. There's a tithe on profit. So you work... You maintain the ability to work profitably. You tithe. You provide for yourself and your house. Uh, at order, you might go, the idea of, of tithing and providing. Okay, We give the first fruits to God. And God pros- promises provision. And that involves even, for example, if the church, if the diaconal fund literally involves, I need $10 of help. I'm giving $10 in tithe, and then the church gives back the $10, that's a blessed moving around of cash. That brings blessing on you, it brings blessing on the church, and it meets your provision. And what it does is it makes people aware of the need for the help. And so that is a process that is a, a thing that makes aware of the need and brings diaconal support. 
So then the duties are giving or lending for the immediate need of people you have a covenant with. And people you run into providentially kind of fall in after that. You have a duty to save for emergencies. You have a duty to thankfully enjoy blessings, to save for generosity, to invest and increase the dominion and leave an inheritance. And then lastly, to give free will offerings. Now, the general duty of giving is laid out in some of the verses uh, below there. The duty of giving to brothers first in John, 1 John 3.17 is listed there. Uh, the way that this law is applied, Ephesians 4.28 is a clear connector to this commandment. It says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. The idea of don't steal, work, save up, be generous. Right? That's laid out there. This is that, that general thing. Notice you don't give before you've saved. You're not generous before you save. You can be generous with what you save. But if you don't have savings, you can't be generous. The general duty to provide for the household and the fact that it's more basic than the obligation to provide for the brotherhood. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good, to especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sorry, that's not the one. Uh, there's a different text that I... I think I forgot to put on here that references the idea that if you don't provide for some of your own household, you are worse than an unbeliever. So that establishes that. Forgive me, I don't remember the citation. But so the special duty towards brothers and then the special duty towards the household is even more basic than that. Point 12. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. Okay, so judgments, wills, and affections. Moderation involves this. Moderation involves you don't overvalue and you don't undervalue. You don't overvalue, and you do not undervalue. If you undervalue, you are a miser. If you overvalue, you are greedy. You're covetous. So, moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. What do you think about worldly goods? Do you overvalue them? Do you undervalue them? How, how would you even tell? Probably sitting there going, I think I do both. You're probably right. Different times, right? So, the judgments that we have would involve how valuable do we see them as? Do we see them as the most valuable thing? Do we see them as more valuable than following God's law in every instance? That's an overvaluing of worldly goods. Do you undervalue them? Do you... Do you not put sufficient work into making sure that you can do all the things listed out? Providing for yourself, tithing, being able to save, to be generous, to invest, to leave an inheritance. Right? These are the kinds of, if, if, you're, if you're not pursuing that, you're undervaluing them. That's a requirement. It's a positive duty of God's law. So, here's a, a conditional set of things to help you to evaluate this. So let's go to the will, because judgments are going to be manifested in what you choose. The judgments are what you think, and your will is the mind choosing. So what do you choose? That's a, a marker for you of what you think. It brings evidence and draws attention to examining your thoughts. If you're not able to work, if you're not able to tithe, if you're not able to provide for yourself and your house, 
If you're not able to give or lend for the immediate need of those who are in covenant with you, if you can't save for an emergency, if you're not able to thankfully enjoy blessings that have been given to you, if you're not able to save for generosity's sake, if you're not able to invest, and if you also have more free time than is necessary to sleep, keep your body in working condition, eat, worship morning and evening for six days, and keep the Sabbath, then you're not choosing to improve your condition sufficiently. Now, those are two sets of conditions. If the first and the second. You need to moderate your will by being more industrious. On the other side, if you don't have time or resources for the things that, that are up at you know, 12B Roman numeral 2, uh, 1, right? if, you don't, if you don't have uh, time and resources for all those things and you need help, then ask your brothers for help so that you can do less and have what's needed. You're being overly rigorous with yourself. And I think all of us can probably remember times when we were insufficiently industrious. I know I can. Basically everything before I was like 22. Okay. Then I can also remember times where I was over-rigorous and I worked too hard and didn't have sleep, didn't, didn't you know, properly value the worship of God, was not sufficiently careful about the Sabbath. There are, there are ways in which I can, be, I can remember over-rigor of work in pursuit of material goods. So, our, our view of these things, right, we, we don't properly identify necessities that we need to make sure we don't compromise on, and we tend to not properly view how much we should require people to have to work and so, you think about Christians who have owned farms or Christians who were wage laborers historically, it has been very common for people to work six days a week for 12 hours in history. That's 72 hours a week. Now, that's not a great condition to be in. You want to get out of that. But when people are trying to figure out how to scrape by, that has been what has happened as need arose. If you know any farmers, you should ask them how much they work. Even modern farmers. Now, work does not just involve work for money. You have other work that you need to do. And that work involves, you know, you have an obligation to sleep, and then you got four hours for get ready, do other stuff, whatever, and then there's 12 hours left in the day. And that idea of how do you deal with the duties to your children, the duties to your spouse, the duties to fellow church members? It is, if I read books written by pastors of centuries gone by, the general thing that they say is, the whole of my life is taken up by one type of work or another. It is like a resting from one kind of work taken up by another. But there's this piston-like action, that the relaxing from one thing to move into another kind of work. Now, I cannot say that that's entirely true for myself, but I can say that that's largely true. The vast majority of my time was taken up by one kind of work or other. You know, when you're a grown man, you, you typically don't pick up toy guns and play with them. right? So if you have small children, you might do that for the blessings of your children. 
That's a type of work. Except for me, it's really fun. And so that desire to fulfill the needs of the people around you is a desire to work. So work can be enjoyable. I find most of the work I do enjoyable. Not all of it. But most of it. And when you do labor in something, you find it enjoyable and fulfilling, and you, there are fruits of the thing. And so the ability to productively engage oneself, not always on things that generate money, is a part of what we're obligated to do in the Eighth Commandment. It's this obligation of applying our talents and our giftings and our time and our effort and our focus to accomplish good works. Those are defined by the law of God. But the duty to fulfill these material obligations is real. And frankly, we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. And we can sell labor more expensively than at any other time. And so the ability to trade time for money and then to be able to build up capital. C, moderation of affections concerning worldly goods. If you're spending money on luxuries, things that are not necessary to perform a duty, or on things that are not investments, and you do not have enough, to re enough resources to work, tithe, provide for yourself and your house, give or lend for immediate need to people you have covenant duties to, save for an emergency, thankfully enjoy a blessing, save for generosity, invest, repay any debts, then you should moderate yourself by stopping the spending on luxuries and non-investments. Right? This is the obligation of, of controlling your affections. There's lots of stuff I want and like that I want to buy. There's lots of stuff that I like that I want and want to buy that I do not have the money for. Now, I could neglect duties and find the money for them. Lots of duties to neglect. So many. Neglect the duties, find money. But when you have duties, it's a form of theft, not criminal theft, but in the sight of God, a mismanagement, a misallocation to expend on luxuries and non-investments. If you're not spending money on any luxuries and you have no significant debt, and you're able to do all that list, right? Let's go through the list again. This is a great thing for you to think about. Working, tithing, providing for your house and yourself, giving or lending for the immediate need of people you have covenant duties to, saving for an emergency, thankful enjoyment, saving for generosity and investment. Right? If you, I delete out there the thankful enjoyment of the blessing. That's the part that we're talking about, so forgive the typo there. If you're not spending on those luxuries, if you're not spending on thankful enjoyment, and you're able to fulfill those other duties, then you're robbing yourself of the enjoyment of blessings that God would have you enjoy. Those are comforts. Those are ordinary means for your enjoyment and blessing, and actually for your greater productivity. In the Old Testament, a portion of the tithe was supposed to be used for the luxurious enjoyment of the feast days. You take part of the tithe, and you go and you buy the fat and the honey and you enjoy it with the family and just have this grand feast. Think about the expense of the Old Covenant involving three journeys. Travel was expensive then. 
No Greyhound buses. Maybe you had Greyhounds to mush, right? Is that no? Okay, desert. So no Greyhound buses, no flights, lots of walking, some donkeys. The traveling that takes time is expensive, and the whole nation's doing it. Three times a year, both ways. And while you're there, you're expending money lavishly. That system was expensive. And it was about the idea of God providing and recognizing God's power to give. A, man, a land overflowing with milk and honey was given to support that. So there's a place for this grateful enjoyment. And there's an order of duties. Now, this idea of moderating on both sides. Asceticism is wrong. We don't want to cause ourselves pain and remove ourselves from having lawful enjoyments. And hedonism is wrong. Pleasure is not the good. All right. Point 13, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustention of our nature. Sustention is a fun word, right? Sustain, it's a very old form. Sustention of our nature and suitable to our condition. Right? So what's our nature and what's our condition? Your nature doesn't change. Your condition does. Your nature doesn't change. Your condition does. Provident care is like forward-looking care. We have to think about the future. And the funny thing is, the Lord Jesus says to not worry about tomorrow because it has enough troubles today for us to worry about. So how can we be both forward-looking and also not worry about tomorrow? Well, you plan with the resources you have and trust God. And you deal with the problems that are here. And you're not anxious about them. Instead, you trust God to resolve them. We all have a we all have, I'm sure, a good list of things that if we wanted to, we could become anxious over pretty quick. And so, our faith overcomes anxiety. Our belief that God is sovereign and He loves us, that He has chosen us from before the foundation of the earth, that He sent His Son to pay for our sins, that He planned everything that would ever happen to us, that He designed us for a glorious end, that He planned to use us as instruments for the fulfillment of the dominion mandate and the Great Commission, that He intends for us to have effects that have an eternal weight of glory. If you believe that, if you believe He's numbered every hair on your head and that sparrows don't fall from the sky apart from His will, That allows you to not be anxious. So a provident care involves a faith, hope, looking forward. Hope is a confident desire. It's a desire with confidence. Con fide. It's a desire, something you want and it's something that you have faith, fide, is going to happen. You know, you can have confidence that God will provide for you because he promises it. You can have confidence that he will do good works through you because he's predestined it. And so a provident care 
We know that God will glorify himself. We know that he will use us to glorify himself. And so we think, here are the resources God has given me. Let's do the planning part. The, let's do the calculations. And so here, there's a lawful way to go through those calculations and the hypotheticals. And you try to intelligently map out extremes and to think about what you expect to be likely. Now, the provident care involves a, a focused attention, a concern, and the study. This study involves being able to think about what does the scripture teach about property and planning. We look at the Eighth Commandment about those things. You can find business books and skill resources. YouTube has amazing videos to be able to show you how to do stuff. You, you, you have a car you've got to repair. You can look up the model of the car and the part you're trying to fix, and you'll find five videos. Right? It's unbelievable the amount of resources of knowledge to be able to do things. Mentorship from people who have a skill, being able to work and learn in the process, receiving training and putting the training into practice. Right? This is a way of studying and developing a concern for and ability to perform things. So we have a, a duty to look forward and care and plan and to study to get. This involves also delayed, delayed gratification. When you take money and put it into planning for the future, you're not enjoying its use right now. So the Protestant work ethic, the Puritan work ethic, the idea of delayed gratification. Investment involves delayed gratification. And one of the most important things to invest in, frankly, is your own competence in being able to use other stuff. Right? Knowledge and skill is so much more valuable than just a piece of material. I can't tell you how many things I've bought because I thought I was going to be able to use them to do something awesome, and then I incompetently never touched the thing. I'm sure that's happened to none of you. So, but for me, the knowledge and the skill a lot more useful. And that knowledge and skill is to get, keep, use, and dispose of things that are necessary and convenient to sustain your nature and your condition. So getting, keeping, using, and disposing, right? Getting is acquiring. You get the new things. The keeping involves the maintaining of them, and the use of them involves the deployment of them. And here's something that I'm particularly bad at, throwing things away. My wife's really good at it, so the house is livable. And so this idea of disposing of things, there are times when it's a bad idea to keep a business. There are times when it's a bad idea to keep a piece of property. And it's your duty to sell it or to throw it away. There are pieces of machinery that I have not been able to sell and that do not have use that get thrown away. That idea of having to dispose of things that there's an, you find the use for it, but you also find a, an end date for its use at a time when it's now foolish to maintain the thing. Historically, most of the recycling that has been done has been a waste. It costs more than making something new, which means it's unprofitable. Which is, by the way, why most of the cities stopped recycling for a period of years after an overabundance of recycling programs were initiated. Now, what's necessary and convenient to our natures and to our conditions? Well, those are the things that are absolutely necessary, necessity, as 
ordinary means and things that are increase our capacity or ease our burden in work. So the convenient things make it easier, increase our capacity. The necessary things, we have to do this or we won't be able to fulfill our duties. The sustenation of our nature. So these are the things that support our bodies and our souls and allow us to perform our duties. That's how we're designed. And what's suitable for our condition? How do you fulfill your rank? How do you allow your wealth to be preserved and increase? How do you make it so you can spend the resources necessary for the duties that are rooted in your current wealth and rank? And what abilities do you have? Right? The more abilities you have, the more of a waste it is when you don't work hard. Everybody has a duty to work hard. But if you think, I'm smart so I can slack, right? I'm smart so I can slack, then what you are doing is you are wasting so much productivity that you could generate. If you're smart, you could work hard and be amazing, and generate amazing amounts of wealth and good for your neighbor. Instead, you're taking that capability and talent and skill and squandering it to be able to get by and do less work. That's a very high-priced leisure. And if you're not using the leisure to be able to generate value, then that's waste. So the duty for a lawful calling is where we'll pick up next time, and hopefully we'll be able to get to the negative duties as well. Are comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, Elderis. I just wanted to provide a, the verse that you were looking for. Thank you. Um, verse Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Very good, thank you. It was 1 Timothy 5 what again? Uh, verse 8. 1 Timothy 5, 8 is the text about being worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your household. Thank you. Any other questions or comments or objections? All right. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to uh, perform our duties as relates to the Eighth Commandment. You'd help us to be good stewards. We ask that you would teach us to be good at talking about money with each other and how to improve the use of it, to be good at organizing our work and time, and choosing wise productivity. I ask that you'd help us to have a proper judgment and will and affection for the goods of this world, to have moderate, not overvaluing not undervaluing view of those things Father I, I ask that you would help us to be able to increase our dominion for your glory and to be able to use the things you give to us in a way that properly deals with all of our duties and to not fall off to the right or to the left and we ask that you would cause the political order in our nation and our state to Respect property rights, to see the tax burden decline, to see the fruits of labor maintained by those who work, to see money not being extracted to give to those who do not work, and to, and to reduce the activities of government to the proper biblical levels so that we would not see uh, a tyranny in the land and the oppression of the rights of property. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.